Calvary Satterton and good morning Calvary Quakertown. And I hope you uh, watch that little video because that's the last time you're ever going to see it. We are concluding our summer of 2017 series, Get Busy Living. And that means whenever we conclude a series, I always have a question to answer, and that is, how do we wrap the series up? How do we conclude it? Well, my first thought was, kind of the lazy way, well, I got an idea. Let's just review what we've talked about. So I figured I'd come and we'd say, oh, remember Summer Breeze? And, and we could sing the song together as our closing hymn, right? Or maybe we talk about rest. Or maybe we need to remind ourselves to forgive each other, say no so we can say yes. Remind ourselves God is our shepherd. There are only two ways to live, not with a closed fist but with an open fist. Live a united life as a community, not a divided life of self-interest. And you know what? That would really be a good way to end because some of you missed some weeks. You didn't send postcards either. Um, well, you were on vacation, you missed that. And so that, that may be a good strategy. You catch up on a week you miss. Well, you can always go back and listen to the podcast or you can watch the video now. But those of you say, well, that's boring. We've already done it. Don't want to cover it again. Well, others say, uh, well, you know what? Maybe we'll tackle a new topic. Get busy living by loving one another better. Get busy living by inviting people more to Calvary. After all, it's the beginning of fall. Let's invite people. So getting back into their new rhythms. Get busy giving. Uh, but then people say, well, look, I like my series tied together in a nice little bow at the end. And here you are launching off on a new topic. Now I've got 15 other questions. So we're not doing either of those. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look, we're going to remind ourselves of the themes of the series by looking at a new text and a familiar passage. We're going to remind ourselves of the themes of the series by looking at a new text and a familiar story. Now here's where this idea comes from. Um, usually each summer I speak at a couple of conferences around, and the one conference I spoke at this summer had a theme, and the theme was actually a question. The question was, how should we live? Now, I'm not sure if they realized it or not, but that question actually comes from a book that was written by Francis Schaeffer a few decades ago now, and the title of the book was, How Shall We Then Live? And the question that Schaeffer was answering goes like this, because we've been transformed by the gospel, because we are the beneficiaries of all of God's grace and goodness, and in light of the present culture and context in which we live, how should we live? In light of what God's done, and in light of, of the world we live in, how shall we then live? Well, they answered the question at the conference. They didn't say buy Schaefer's book. Um, they answered the question with uh, three phrases. And here are the phrases. Give thanks, excuse me, rejoice, pray, give thanks. Give thanks, pray, rejoice. Now, they did realize that those three um, commands actually come from a section of the Bible. In fact, they come from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Do you see the coalescence of the themes? How shall we live? Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Get busy living, how? Well, here's a good way. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. That'd be a good thing to do, right? Now, I know some of you are thinking, boy, this is good. 9.35, he's done. No, no, no. Remember, I said a new pass, a new verse. There are new verses and a familiar story. Okay, here's the verse. Here are the three verses. 
Rejoice, pray, give thanks. The first thing, we've got a sermon and a sentence. Those three verses make up one sentence. And this would be a good sentence for you to memorize. Here we go. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now at the conference, they made everybody, well not make, you know, some people didn't I guess, and then you weren't allowed to go home. Um, but they wanted everybody to memorize that one sentence, which is actually three verses. I mean, isn't that cool? You memorize one sentence, you got three verses. You can impress, I memorized three verses of the Bible this week, really? Well, it's only one sentence. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How about if we say that together as a first step in your memorizing them? Ready? Here we go. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Get busy living. That's a great way to get busy living, right? Now, some of you already should be thinking, Boy, some of that sounds familiar by the things we talked about this summer. We talked about praying. We talked about giving thanks. We talked about trusting God when you say no and say yes. Yeah. I mean, we've kind of done it. Well, that's the sermon in a sentence. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But now you're going to get the sentence in a story. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses. And when I was reading that ver or those verses and I kept thinking about the sentence, for some reason this story kept coming into my head. I'm not sure why, but it kept coming into my head, and so it's going to come into your head. Again, it's a real familiar story, um, and I'm counting on you already knowing the nuances or some of the nuances of the story, because we're not going to break it down in detail. We're going to assume that you kind of know what's going on. Now, I want you, as I read through it, I want you to think of the three words, right? Rejoice, pray, give thanks. See if you see them in the story. We'll remind ourselves of a few statements, and then we're done. So here we go, John 2, beginning of verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the, pro then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. They're all in the story. So we got the sermon in a sentence. We got the sentence in a story. So let's talk about it. Do you see the prayer in the story? Here's the prayer. Mary says, they have no more wine. I'm not sure if you realize this. That's the first prayer in the Bible ever prayed to Jesus. 
Kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, now, I know that there are lots of very eloquent prayers in the world, and some of you uh, may be really good at praying those eloquent prayers. In fact, some of you in your homes probably have pillows with needlepoint or embroidery on, the Lord is my shepherd. And some of you pray like that, right? Our Father who art in heaven. That's a glorious prayer, right? I mean, Jesus teaches to pray that way. My guess is you don't have any plaques in your house that say, there is no more wine. Maybe they have that prayer in Napa. I don't think they have it here in Southern or Quakertown. But isn't that interesting? The first prayer made to Jesus is they have no more wine. What's the prayer essentially? Help. Help. Jesus, you may not realize this, but this wedding is about ready to go bust. This party is about ready to hit the wall. Jesus, help. Is it easy for you to uh, ask for help? I was thinking of uh, some examples. I have to ask for help a lot. Some of you are thinking, yeah, we know. Uh, When my computer is locked up, help, Bob. When something's wrong with my car, help, Tony. When I can't find the clicker, help, Kim, where'd you put it? When when my tire light comes on, like it did yesterday, help, Wawa. But it's hard to ask for help, isn't it? Because when you ask for help, you have to admit that you're weak. When you ask for help, you have to admit you're incompetent. And after all, once you ask for help, now the person may actually, uh, you may be in debt to them. And when they ask you for help, you may not have to help them. And it probably is going to come in a real inconvenient time when you don't want to help them. Now they ask you, and since they helped you, now you've got to help them. It's like a whole big thing, right? Yeah, but notice... Uh, Mary goes to Jesus and she says, Mary, or Jesus, this wedding is about ready to go bust. They don't have any more wine. We need to ask for help, right? Now, notice there are two things in the prayer. Mary admits the problem and she knows where to go. I kind of remember that when Fuji spoke, remember? There you see it. You see it lived out in the story. There's the sentence. Uh, In the story, Mary knows there's a problem. She can't afford to go to the state store and buy more wine. Who else is going to be able to do it? She knows where to go. She admits the problem. Boy, that's an awful lot that we need to know about prayer, right? Admit the reality. Admit the problem. And you realize where to go. You go to Jesus. Well, there's also a rejoicing that comes. I'm not sure if you realize this, but at every wedding I've ever been part of or every wedding I I ever attended... Something always goes wrong. Did you ever notice that? And I try to tell the couples, especially, you know, the mother of the bride, I I try to tell them, now look, those are the things you'll remember most, and you'll laugh about them. Not today. You're going to cry and get mad today. But soon you'll be laughing about this stuff. The flowers are the wrong color. Somebody can't stop crying. That, like, freaks me out, right? A few of the groomsmen pass out. I've had that numerous times. Like the one, I still remember the one, there was like this railing in the church we were doing. One groomsman, he went right over the railing. I'm laughing hysterically, right? Trying to compose myself. And I, well, he was okay, I, th- I think, after they carried him out. Uh, one wedding, uh, something goes wrong. I announced the wrong couple as the first announcement. Uh, they used to come to Calvary Church, that couple. Uh, think they've moved on. But something usually goes wrong at the wedding. 
Now, we look at what's going wrong at this wedding, and you think, so big deal. Yeah, but in that culture, it was a really big deal because hospitality was like priority number one. And if you invited people over, you were expected to treat them almost like royalty, particularly if it was at a wedding. And if you're running out of resources, particularly running out of wine, that is not just a faux pas. That's just a black mark against you. You will be a laughing stock and probably slandered for generations to come. But rather than that incident becoming a joke and a cause for slander, the embarrassment is swallowed up in rejoicing. Most of the guests, think about it, they never even realize what happened, right? They just continue the party. They're just celebrating and enjoying the, the festivities. They're celebrating and rejoicing. But the few people that do know what's going on, boy, they're celebrating and joyful at a different level, aren't they? Well, let's talk about the giving thanks part. Uh, we're not told anywhere in the story that people give thanks. And so you're saying, Charles, you're just making this up. All right, well, let me just ask you a few questions. The servants are the ones that um, fill the ceremonial water jars to the brim with water, right? They're the ones that know the miracle took place. So when the servants then take the water from the jar to the master of the banquet, kind of like, you know, the MC, the wedding coordinator, and, and it's become wine, great wine, the servants knew what happened. So here's my question. What do you think the servants said when they got home their night, that night and their, and their wives said, so how was work today? How was the wedding? Just kind of the routine. What do you think they said? You won't believe what happened. Jesus was at the wedding, and, you know, we, we, we don't really know who this guy is very much, but he told us to put water into the ceremonial washing jars, and we took it to the master of the banquet, and you won't believe what happened. The water became wine. Can you believe it? When the bride and groom figured out what happened, do you think they were thankful? I mean, their reputation was about to go in the tank, but now that story is recorded and a couple thousand years later, we're talking about it in Southern Pennsylvania. We're talking about, just so all of you know, we're not going to be talking about your wedding 2,000 years from now, all right? Do you think they were giving thanks? The master of the banquet, he was probably never going to get hired again. When he finds out what happened, do you think he's giving thanks? Yeah, we may not have the words recorded in the story that the bridegroom and the bride and that the master of the banquet and the guests gave thanks and the servants... Yeah, but sure as shooting, when they found out what happened, they were giving thanks. And looking back, they gave thanks that they were part of this first miracle that Jesus did, his calling card miracle, describing what his ministry was going to be all about. And through the ages, people have given thanks when they read the story because it shows us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of celebration and joy, not a kingdom of drudgery and hard works. Lots of thanks in the story, right? So this is the, sentence, or is the sermon, the sentence in a story, but I'm going to leave you with a few statements and then we're done. A few statements, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of the series as I tease out some of the statements from the story, and let's see if you can wrap your head around the series and this story and that statement to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Well, here's the first statement. God is not a God of deprivation, but abundance. 
I think I've said that a few times this summer, right? Some of you, yeah, Charles, we're sick of you saying it. That's because you don't believe me yet. God is not a God of deprivation. He is a God of abundance. But we often live with this crazy idea that God's trying to make our lives as miserable as possible, right? God wants us to toe the line. And the way God encourages us to do that, when you step out of line, he swats you a little bit. You don't do what he wants, he kind of causes your experiences to be downscaled. And he deprives us of things to get us to do the right thing. That's not the picture we get from the Bible. And that's not what we see here. What do we see here? We see here abundance. And so here's where it shows up all over the place. Nearby stood six stone water jars. The kind used for ceremonial cleansing. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And they bring the water that had been turned to wine to the master of the banquet. And the master of the banquet says, boy, this wedding couple is stupid. Usually you bring out the best wine. Then when people have had a little too much to drink, then you bring out the cheap wine. They've saved the best wine till now. Jesus provides the best wine, and he provides 150 gallons of it. He fills six stone jars all the way to the top. God's not a God of deprivation. He's a God of abundance. I probably do need to say uh, at this point that this story makes uh, some Christians, some churchgoers a little nervous because there are literally uh, millions of people, some of whom we know, that struggle with alcoholism and addiction. And they wonder what in the world this story is about. Jesus is giving wine to people. The point is, God is not a God of deprivation. He's a God of abundance. And if you're imprisoned by addiction, you can pray and God can deliver you from that. And if you're living like an orphan, God can give you a family. And if you're living in sin, God can save you and free you and forgive you. The point of the story is that God is able to meet our needs and exceed those needs, moving deprivation all the way to abundance, not to a point of neutrality, all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And so this is not a call to go do whatever you want. It's a call that says, yes, God gives good gifts. We can surely misuse good gifts, and the good gifts become something that's keeping us down and imprisoning us. But don't blame the good gift. God can deliver you even from the misuse of a good gift. All right, here's the next statement I want to give you. Jesus brings celebration and rejoicing. What would have happened at the wedding if the wine just ran out? Well, the guests would have gone home ticked off. They would have gone home making fun of the bride and the bridegroom. They would have gone home accusing the master of the banquet, never going to empire him to do a job for them. Instead, the party continues, the embarrassment is overridden, and we read about the story a couple thousand years later. Here's where it shows up in the story. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for ceremonial cleansing, each holding from 20 to 30. Now, let me tell you how this works. Jesus brings celebration and rejoicing. And in this first miracle, we see what Jesus' mission is all about. These were not the typical, I mean, these weren't water jugs. You know, you you press the button and water comes. No, 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 it's not a water cooler. These were jars that were used, the water was used for ceremonial cleansing. Here's what Jesus is doing in a miracle. 
Jesus comes and says, religion works like the water jar. How does religion work? Well, it's really up to you. Clean yourself up. Wash yourself off. Go over to the water jar, put it on your hands, wash your hands off, clean your face up a little bit, and maybe if you clean yourself really well, you'll be able to be presentable before God. That's religion, right? Clean yourself up. Fix yourself. Yeah, God may provide the means, but God lays out the hoop, but you need to jump through the hoops to clean yourself up. What does the gospel say? Jesus gives the gift, and the gift works from the inside out, not from the outside in. Religion says if you clean your hands and clean your face and toe the line, maybe you'll work out a goodness that's good enough on the inside to be acceptable to God. Jesus says, no, no, it doesn't work like that. I give you the gift. And it's a gift of joy and celebration. And it starts on the inside and works itself on the outside. And the difference on the inside will change you on the outside. Everything you need to know about the difference between religion and what Jesus brings is right there in the first miracle. Ceremonial water jars turned into containers that hold wine. Well, here's the next statement. Mary teaches us how to pray. We already looked at that. Mary comes and says, help. She admits the problem, goes to Jesus, the one that can solve it. But here's the point I want to make. In your mind, is keeping the wedding reception going a big thing or a little thing on the grand scheme of things? I mean, it certainly doesn't measure up to the Harvey situation. It doesn't measure up to situations in our world that could be catastrophic very quickly. On the grand scheme of things, it seems like a little infinitesimal deal. Well, here's the point. We need to go to Jesus with everything. The little tiny things on one end of the spectrum and the gigantic things on the other end of the spectrum. The little hurts and bruises that you experience, those things that may cause embarrassment to you, those things that you don't want to bring up, those things that may cause you to be slandered or you to be a laughing stock. Bring those things to Jesus. And on the other end of the, end of the continuum, the gigantic things that you may not even think God can handle, bring that to Jesus too. Whatever it is, bring it to Jesus. So we need to regularly be looking at our lives, looking for situations that are beyond our ability to control, small things, medium-sized things, and big things, and take them to Jesus, the one that can do something about them. And he loves us, and he's sovereign, and we bring them to him, and just watch what happens. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, fill the water jars, and we read, the servants filled them to the brim. Isn't that interesting? You know, water is heavy. Eight pounds a gallon. 150 gallons. I should have done the math beforehand. I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the servants and Jesus says, you know, half a bucket would have been good for me, right? I'm done. But they didn't stop when they were half full. They didn't stop when they were three-quarter full. They filled them to the very brim. One commentator I read this past week said this. If you bring Jesus a thimble, he'll fill it. If you bring him a bucket, he'll fill it. If you bring him a barrel, he'll fill it. 
the servants filled the jars to the brim, and that took effort and work on their part, didn't it? They filled them, not a thimbleful, not a bucketful, all the way to the brim. Another lesson. Follow the instructions while you wait. Uh, Mary comes to Jesus and says the first prayer, they have no more wine. Jesus says, we're not quite sure how the tone of it went. A woman, why are you bothering me? It's not my hour yet. Uh, Mary doesn't answer Jesus. She doesn't debate with them. Um, she was unlike my mother, I guess. We would have had an argument there about why we're doing this. Uh, but Mary doesn't say, what do you, I'm your mother. You're going to listen to what I say? She doesn't say that. She turns to the servants, and here's what she says. Do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you to do. Now, here's the point. How many of you do you think that when Jesus tells them what to do, it's going to make sense? It makes sense to us because we know the end of the story. Okay, you're one of the servants. They have no more wine. They're here to ceremonial water jars. Everybody washed their hands and feet before they went in. And then Jesus, Mary says, do whatever he tells you. First thing he says, oh, by the way, you don't look busy enough. Fill the water jars all the way to the brim. They're probably thinking, well, the people are already cleaned up. What, are they going to come back out and clean up again? Why are they going to? But they don't get into a debate. Whatever he says, do it. Do whatever he tells you to do. That's pretty good advice, you know. In fact, that is what this series has been about from beginning to end. Get busy living. Here's how you get busy living. Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, what are the chances it's going to make sense to you? Slim to none. Remember, you have a problem beyond your ability to solve. Well, if you can't solve or figure out the problem, what are the chances when you go to Jesus who can solve the problem, what are the chances you're going to agree with and assume you're going to completely get in step with what he tells you to do? You're slim to none. Do whatever he tells you to do. You know how you continue what Jesus started? You do whatever he tells you to do. Every once in a while, I was thinking this this past week, every once in a while people will say, uh, so Charles, what... What kind of church is like Calvary Church? Oh, Calvary's a great church. We have great community. We're interested more in others. We're interested in ourselves. We want to meet the needs of people. We want to continue what Jesus... Here's how I'm going to answer from here on out. What kind of church is Calvary Church? We're a do-whatever-he-tells-you kind of church. Wouldn't that be a good church? What kind of church? We do whatever he tells us to do. And most of the time, it's not going to make sense to us. That's because he's a whole lot smarter than we are. Whatever he tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. So when he says, love your neighbor, we're going to love your neighbor. When he says love your enemy, we're going to love our enemy. When he says care for the poor, we're going to care for the poor. When he says care more about others than yourself, we're going to care more about others. When he says put others' interests ahead of your own, we're going to put others', others interests ahead of our own. When he says give sacrificially to meet the others, we're going to give sacrificially. Why? Because that's what he told us to do. Yeah, but why are you doing that? Because that's what he told us to do. What kind of church is Calvary Church? We're whatever he tells you to do church. That'd be good, wouldn't it? The theme of the series, get busy living, do whatever he tells you to do. You won't regret it a million years from now. So it would be wise to start doing it today. One last thing. The first points to the last. The last uh, verse that I read, verse 11, says something really strange. Here's what it says. What Jesus did here turning the water into wine, right, and keeping the party going, bringing celebration and joy in response to Mary's prayer, right, everything we talk about. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, look at this, was the first 
of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What? If you're going on a trip and you come across a sign that says, you know, Disney World, 25 miles, you don't get everybody out of the car and expect to have fun beneath the sign. The sign's pointing you to a destination 25 miles down the road. This miracle is a sign pointing to something down the road. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, I think the pointer goes in a couple directions, but I've already mentioned one. The pointer is Jesus did not bring a new religion. He would have brought new water jars then. Jesus turns water into wine. He brings the gospel that transforms us from the inside out. And Jesus shows us the end of all ends is not Labor Day weekend. The end of all ends is a celebration and a party. Now, you can read about that in Revelation, or you can read about that in Isaiah 25. So I'm going to close by reading a few verses from Isaiah chapter 25. When Isaiah the prophet looked down through the corridor of history, he sees Jesus, right, the servant. He sees the result, and here's how Isaiah describes the end. And as I read Isaiah 25, you keep thinking of John 2 and the calling card miracle that Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry. Isaiah writes, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy death that enfolds all people. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, his people will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So with Isaiah's prophecy ringing in the mind of the Jews that were at the wedding, Jesus shows up and makes 150 gallons of the best wine ever. In other words, he's saying, the party's about ready to start. I'm the one that brings the celebration. Let's stand and pray. Father, sometimes our attention is so focused on the immediate the sacrifice, the pain, the pinch. But Lord, Jesus tells us right at the beginning, keep your eye on the party. Keep your eye on the celebration. Yeah, there'll be some suffering. And yeah, there'll be a little pinch. And there'll be sacrifice. But make no mistake, I come to bring a party. I come to bring rejoicing. I come to bring the kingdom. I bring it, you don't bring it. You accept it, you drink it in, and let's look forward and begin the celebration even today. We pray in Christ's name, amen.